Uh, thanks for that kind introduction, Nan. Um, it's a pleasure and honor to, uh, to be with you today. Um, and uh, I, I, I extend to you a warm welcome to uh, not only Baltimore and Maryland, but the Fifth Federal Reserve District, which, as you know, extends from Maryland down through South Carolina. Um, and um, it's, it's a pleasure uh, to be part of this. I'm glad that supply was elastic with regard to seating arrangements at lunch here, and so supply could intersect demand at the right place. Um, the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, uh, like the other 12 or the other 11 reserve banks around the country, has a, a fairly rich economic education uh, program for teachers and students at all levels. And I see many of my colleagues who are devoted to this effort uh, here. I want to give them a little shout out. And um, people from around the system are here today as well. Um, now, at first, it might not be obvious why the Federal Reserve is so interested in economic education. In the news and in textbooks, uh, the role of the Fed is portrayed as conducting monetary policy in order to fulfill our, our dual mandate of price stability and maximum employment. But as we've seen during the recovery from this uh, great recession that we experienced several years ago, there are significant limits to the power of monetary policy alone to affect the real economy. Federal Reserve policy actions cannot necessarily counteract the effects of fiscal policy uncertainty, declining productivity growth, uh, or structural changes in the labor market. And all of these now appear to be playing a role to some degree or another. Now, recent events have sent us a clear message related to the employment part of our mandate. The Great Recession has had a substantial impact on the labor market experiences of a great many Americans. As I'll spell out today, skill level has made a large difference in the ability of individuals to weather the recession and its aftermath. The opportunities available to current and future cohorts of young Americans thus seems inextricably tied to the skills they acquire. As a result, I believe there are enormous potential payoffs to bolstering economic and financial literacy on the critical issue of young people's investment in their own human capital. By providing people with better information and enabling them to make better choices, we can have an effect on a range of personal and social outcomes, from employment and standards of living uh, to economic mobility and inequality. So today, I'd like to talk to you about the principles that motivate the Richmond Fed's approach to financial education and how those principles relate to what we've learned from a large body of empirical and theoretical research on human capital accumulation. This all suggests that our current focus on helping students decide how to pay for college, a focus that presumes that college is necessarily the right choice for everyone and that success is almost guaranteed, might be misplaced. Instead, a better focus might be educating students about both the risks and rewards of college so they can understand whether it's the right choice for them and how to enhance their prospects of success. Before I begin, I should note the standard disclaimer that these are my own opinions um, and uh, not those of my colleagues in the Federal Reserve System, but my voting record says that as well, so you probably expected that. So, a moment ago, I referred to helping people make better choices, and I, but I use the word better cautiously, and I have to explain here. Some financial education efforts, uh, while well-intentioned, presume that consumers are prone to making financial mistakes, 
And moreover, that certain decisions, uh, such as taking out an adjustable rate mortgage uh, or a short-term high-interest rate loans, are virtually always mistakes. From an economist's perspective, however, uh, it's extremely hard for an outside observer to determine definitively when a consumer has made a mistake, even if it's easy for an outside observer to conclude that they would choose dif the, differently for themselves. Choices should depend on the preferences, circumstances, and constraints of the consumer who's making the decision, and not on the limited information and beliefs of the observer. In general, prescriptive, one-size-fits-all approaches to financial decision-making may be counterproductive. For example, for a consumer who plans to sell a home in just a couple of years, an adjustable rate mortgage might be a very advantageous option when compared to a fixed rate mortgage with a higher interest rate uh, that might be preferred by someone planning to spend a lot more time in their home. Consumers would benefit, though, from high-quality information that helps them determine the best choice for their particular circumstances, particularly for major financial decisions. And this is where I believe we have, uh, as educators, the greatest opportunity to make a difference. A major financial decision, in my view, has four salient characteristics. First, the consequences are significant. Attending college, for example, has uh, very large financial implications. Future earnings are uncertain. Many students and parents uh, take out sizable student loans in order to make college a reality. Second, the significance uh, is compounded by the fact that the decision is irreversible and illiquid. While you might forget about the particulars of some of your classes, once you've paid your tuition, you can't decide to unlearn your knowledge um, or exchange it on a market for uh, some other good and service. Third, a major financial decision happens only infrequently, so you don't get a chance to practice uh, making that decision. College is generally an investment you only undertake once, and that limits the opportunities you have to learn from your mistakes. Finally, it's complex. Figuring out how much to spend on college requires that you make estimates of returns on your investment as far ahead as 30 years from now. With these characteristics in mind, the Richmond Fed recently launched a new website, majorfinancialdecisions.org, which provides information on buying versus renting a home, planning for retirement, and financing college, three, what, three of what we think of as the major financial decisions in an individual's lifetime. Each of these decisions is significant, long-lasting, uh, infrequent, and complex. So financial education, we believe, is likely to be especially valuable to the consumer in these cases. Today, I want to focus on the last of those decisions, or more pr precisely, an even bigger question that precedes uh, the decision about how to finance a college education. Namely, is college necessarily the right investment for every student? <clears throat> So during the 2010-2011 school year, the published price uh, for a year of tuition, room, and board at a four-year college averaged $16,000 at, at public schools and about $33,000 at private schools. Overall, cost, college costs have increased 35% in real terms since just a decade earlier. Most students pay less than the sticker price through a combination of student aid and tax benefits, but still the numbers are quite daunting. 
the well-publicized increase in tuition rates does not appear to have deterred many people from attending. Enrollment increased 37% between 2000 and 2010. Only part of that increase is due to population growth. The number of 18 to 24-year-olds enrolled in college increased 34% during that period, compared to just 13% for the growth in the overall size of the population in that age group. The increase in enrollment has been accompanied by a dramatic rise in student loan debt to almost $1 trillion, a figure Anna Maria Lusardi mentioned earlier today, about triple the level of 2004. In part, this is because the number of the borrowers has increased, as you might expect given the increase in enrollment, but the amount borrowed has also risen considerably as well. Between 2005 and 2012, average debt per borrower increased 56% from 16000 to 25000 On average, this investment pays off very well. The median income for a college-educated worker is $48,000, compared to $27,000 for a worker with only a high school diploma. Over a lifetime, the average worker with a bachelor's degree can expect to earn $2.3 million based on 2009 earnings data, compared to just $1.3 million for the average worker with just a high school diploma. Workers with college degrees also fare better in economic downturns. Following the Great Recession, for example, the unemployment rate for college-educated workers peaked at 5.1% compared to 11% for non-college-educated workers. As of August, the unemployment rate for workers with a high school diploma was more than double that of workers with a bachelor's degree or higher, 7.6% compared to 3.5%. And even though many recent college grads appear underemployed, they're still earning more than their non-college educated uh, counterparts. The data I described are just averages though, and for the average enrollee, college certainly looks uh, to be like a prudent investment, but averages, as we all know, can obscure some meaningful nuances. First, earnings data are collected from students who complete college. A student who is not yet enrolled may not realize the same return on investment, perhaps because of the that particular student may differ in some important ways from the average college attendee. So there may well be an important difference between the premium earned by the average student and the premium earned by the marginal student. Indeed, some research suggests that as much as half of the college premium is due to selection effects. That is, uh, it's not necessarily due to the degree itself, um, but students who choose to enroll in and complete college are in, in some respects inherently different from those who do not, those differences appear to account for about half of the disparity in earnings that we, we measure uh, from the raw data. There's also wide variation in earnings across majors and occupations. For example, the median income for a worker with a bachelor's degree in counseling psychology is $29,000, a little more than the median income of a high school graduate, as opposed to $120,000 for the recipient of a degree in petroleum engineering. Perhaps the most crucial caveat, though, is that the returns to college depend on finishing college. There's relatively little benefit, at least in terms of earnings, for students who attend college for a year or two but then do not graduate. Median earnings for a worker with some college but no degree are about 15% higher than the earnings of a high school graduate 
compared to about 80% higher for a worker who has obtained their bachelor's degree. We're not talking about a small number of students either. Government data showed that only a little more than half of students who matriculate at four-year college complete a bachelor's degree within six years. The completion rates are considerably lower for African-American and Hispanic students, for students from poor families, and for students who are the first member of their, their family to attend college. Dropping out of college is also very expensive. The average debt burden among all college graduates is more than $7,000, and among only those dropouts who borrowed, it's more than $14,000. One intuitively appealing explanation for the high college dropout rate is that students and their families are credit constrained and thus unable to finance a college education. Most research, however, suggests that credit constraints are not a significant factor in the dropout decision. Part of the explanation might be uh, the rise in the number of non-traditional students who are balancing work and family responsibilities and thus find it more challenging on a time allocation basis uh, to complete a degree. But much of the explanation appears to lie in the fact that many of the students who enroll in college do not have an accurate assessment yet of their own readiness for college. Students who enroll presumably believe that the benefits of college attendance are likely to exceed the costs. But as I've just discussed, the net economic gain from attending just a year or two of college seems to be quite small. And that suggests that something must happen in college to students' beliefs about their likelihood of succeeding. And survey evidence has demonstrated that that's the, the, the case. When asked, entering college students are highly optimistic about their grades, and they say they intend to complete a bachelor's degree within four years. But as they take classes and exams, uh, they revise their assessments of their future performance, and these updated beliefs play a large role in the dropout decision. These surveys also show that students from poor families are more likely to drop out and drop out sooner than students from richer families. So what do these facts about the high rate of college non-completion have to do with economic education? As I mentioned at the beginning of, of this talk, many involved in financial education, the Richmond Fed included, have focused their efforts on informing students about the, for example, the costs of state versus uh, private uh, education, uh, or about the many types of federal private loans available uh, to them. But I would encourage financial education practitioners to give thought about where the provision of information can yield the greatest marginal benefit. The research I've touched on here suggests that might be before the decision to attend college has been made. The decision to invest in human capital is fraught with uncertainty. Prospective college students would benefit from realistic appraisals of their odds of success, as well as a better appreciation of how good preparation for college can improve their odds of success. Many students and families also could benefit from information about other options they could pursue after high school other than enrolling in a traditional four-year college. Community colleges, for example, are a venue where students can learn more about their interests and aptitudes and can practice the skills that are required uh, for success at a four-year school, all the while preserving their option to transfer and continue on towards that four-year degree. And for some students, pursuing a bachelor's degree might not
be the per, ever be the preferred path. These students might be well served by learning about other post-secondary educational opportunities that can improve their labor market outcomes relative to only completing a high school degree or dropping out of college. For example, a growing number of high schools and community colleges are partnering with businesses to offer vocational training and apprenticeship programs that equip students with specialized training. For example, some of the skills uh, that are useful in advanced manufacturing these days. These skills are in high demand by employers these days, and thus they may be less vulnerable uh, to automation or offshoring than many traditional white-collar jobs. In addition to all this, the flip side of the dropout problem is the failure of relatively high-achieving high school students to even apply to college. At first glance, these students uh, might appear myopic or impatient, unwilling to wait for the return on their investment. In economic terms, they would be described as maybe displaying a high discount rate. In fact, um, though, you know, that, is, that, that, that interpretation assumes that students have accurate information uh, about the, their opportunities um, and returns to which the, that they're basing their, on which they're basing their calculation. In fact, many students, particularly low-income students, overestimate the cost of college, and they underestimate their opportunities for financial aid. Students might also face social norms that cause them to undervalue the future payoff or undervalue their likelihood of success. In these cases, what looks like impatience might simply be a lack of information, as demonstrated by several recent studies. In one, researchers found that sending targeted information to low-income, high-achieving students at a cost of a mere $6 per student increased their matriculation rates at selective colleges. Another study focused on high, uh, school, high school seniors in New Hampshire who had 10th grade test scores similar to the scores of college enrollees uh, but were at risk of not applying to college. It found that providing them with mentors and assistance with application forms and tests significantly increased women's college enrollment, although not men's, I should say, and that so far these students are as likely to remain in college as other high school students in the state. This research all suggests that information can play an extremely important role in changing the beliefs of students who erroneously think they're not college material. As I've discussed, the low rate of college completion appears to stem from the fact that many students are not well prepared for college. One option for improving college completion rates and job prospects for potential dropouts is to provide them with accurate information about the costs and benefits of various post-secondary education options. But it's not enough to ask what we can do when a student is 16 or 18 or 20. Instead, it's worth asking as well why some students, too many students today, are poorly prepared in the first place. Numerous researchers and policymakers continue to debate what reforms our education system might, um, might have the greatest impact on student achievement. But one area where I believe we have very strong evidence for the benefits of reform is in early childhood education. There's a consensus now that the foundation for academic and labor market success is laid very early in life, uh, even in infancy. That's because the early mastery of basic emotional, social, and other non-cognitive skills 
makes it easier to learn more complex skills throughout your life. As a result, children who fall behind early have difficulty catching up. Gaps in cognitive skills are, are present as early as age four, and then they, they, those gaps tend to persist into adulthood. But intervening early, the corollary of this is that intervening early can yield large returns. Uh, many researchers have found that the return on a dollar invested in human capital is highest when the investment occurs at age three. And children who receive high-quality early education fare much better on a variety of socioeconomic measures. Research has also shown, however, uh, that poor and minority children are much less likely to have access to such early childhood uh, education programs and are much more likely to fall behind. Greater investment in early interventions thus could help ensure that future choices about how much to invest in a student's human capital aren't limited by family background, and that more people will have the opportunity to achieve their potential. So to sum up, I'll say that the most critical economic decisions people face over their lifetimes concern investments in their human capital. Financial education has traditionally promoted college enrollment by providing prospective students with information on financing options. But success in college is by no means automatic and the benefits of attending but not completing college are relatively low. I've advocated that financial educators shift towards informing students about the value of college preparedness and the value of alternatives to a traditional four-year college degree, such as community colleges or vocational or apprenticeship programs. In addition, Making sure students are well aware of the magnitude of the return to successful college completion would reduce the odds of well-qualified students foregoing college attendance. And finally, I was unable to resist the opportunity to put in a plug for early childhood intervention, where research has demonstrated the high value of targeted high-quality programs. In closing, I think it's useful to remind ourselves of the stakes involved in the quality of decision-making on human capital investments. The breathtaking gains in living standards over the last three centuries uh, have depended crucially on investments in physical capital, it's true. But accompanying improvements in workforce skills broadly thought of, broadly defined, were very clearly critical as well. The accumulation of knowledge over time is essential to the process of uncovering and deploying technological innovations that are essential to economic growth. And when we look at disparities in economic outcomes across our populace or across countries, differences in human capital accumulation loom quite large. Financial education aimed at improving the ability of students and families to make sound human capital investment decisions can help us make sure that people are prepared to make the best use of their talents and opportunities. As educators, you're on the front lines of influencing and preparing our youth. So I urge you to view your mission as absolutely essential to economic growth and its vitality. Thank you very much for your kind attention. And, uh, I, I believe we may have time for questions. We have time for a couple questions. Does anybody have questions for President Lacker? 
Don't be shy. Any, you just said any, that we're doing an awesome job. <laughs> you guys are on the front line. And that we're valuable. Barry? I'll repeat your question, if you'd like. <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks, Barry, for an uncontroversial and unloaded question. Um, I, you know, it's it, it's been traditional in. Uh, you know, in the economic and financial education. Oh, yeah, the question is uh, the effect of uh, economically literate or illiterate um, populace on uh, uh, Washington outcomes, shall we say? Um, and uh, quite a loaded question uh, in this day and age. Uh, so it's popular to blame Washington um, for um, stalemate and, and gridlock um, and, and popular to view what goes on inside uh, the Beltway is somehow disconnected from the rest of our our country and the rest of our economy. But uh, to some extent, it's just uh, the combination of who we are and the views, the diverse views we have in our country, combined with a political ex- system that channels those into various uh, formats. Yes, um, you know, a more understanding, a more enlightened electorate, um, I think, would be useful. Um, I think. Um, I, I, you know, I think an electorate that understands um, trade-offs, understands opportunity cost, uh, is just vital um, to people being making informed decisions uh, and not just viewing um, policy through the lens of how it affects their own pocketbook, as important as that may be for people. Uh, because ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, we're roped together in a lot of ways in our country um, and uh, you know, need to take a holistic view of the world we're in uh, and the options we have and the, the consequences of the choice we, choices we make. Um, so, a uh, good question. There's one in the yeah. back there. Oh. Shh, everybody, shh. Thank you. Um, the speech is my, um, so the question is um, first of all she complimented me on my statistics you can tell you're in a room of educators yes um, so my speech is posted on the Fed Richmond um, richmondfed.org I think works I'm seeing nods from my folks um, and uh should be, should be on the front page click or two away there's a, a set of references there so you can go to the original research find the numbers dig them out yourself Decide whether I interpret them correctly. <laughs> Is there another one over here somewhere? Here? Oh, yeah. I do, thanks. And uh, you know, it's, I mean, rally, a lot of it was appreciated. Um, how, does, how does it compare the U.S. with other countries in terms of the investment in the trio or the outcomes? It's a good question. I'm just going to say I don't know. <laughs> so, question was how does the U.S. compare to other countries on? Uh, investment in early childhood uh, programs, and I, I don't know the answer to that question. I suspect poorly, though. Other questions? One more? Yes. Oh, hi. Well, 
Well, what I tell them, uh, so the question is, uh, if I was speaking to high school and college students, their students, um, uh, what would I tell them about financial decisions? Anything in life? Uh, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what I told my kids and I tell young people. Uh, get good at learning. Because, uh, you know, it's not one and done. It's not learn some skills in your 20s and you're set for life. You're going to have to reskill throughout your life. You're going to have to learn new tools. You're going to have to learn new things. You're going to have to learn some new industry. Look ahead. Think about what's coming, but get used to learning. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure.